my mic on. We're here this morning to celebrate the fulfillment of the first part of what God referred to as the good promise or the gracious promise to use God's own words that were recorded in Jeremiah 33, 14. It's a promise that God made scores of times to many people in the ancient past, partially fulfilled, but only partially fulfilled during Passover week in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. This virgin-born son of Mary, described by himself and the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament historians and writers as coming from eternity past, as the great I am himself, as the living word of God, as the visible representation, he said, of the unseen power that strides the galaxies. To the Romans, he was just another first century Jewish rabbi. But he wasn't any ordinary first century Jewish rabbi. This Jewish rabbi could walk on water. He could control the weather. He could create food. He could heal the sick. He could cast out demons, and he could raise the dead. This divine being came to earth about 2,000 years ago disguised as an ordinary man and offered himself up, big words, as an atoning substitutionary sacrifice to pay a cosmic penalty that he required of himself to redeem or to buy back his prized creation from spiritual death and eternal separation from God. The creator died for his beloved creation, but he didn't stay dead. After three days, he came alive again, and someday Jesus will return visibly and powerfully to fulfill the remainder of that good and gracious promise made by God and establish his kingdom on earth. But that's another story for another time, not this morning. Right now, the historical account of the arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus Christ as recorded by two eyewitnesses, by the way, Matthew and John, and two other early church historians, Mark, who got his information from Peter, and Luke, who was Paul's personal physician, and who said he interviewed many eyewitnesses. After Jesus finished the celebration of a Seder, the Passover meal that Jews celebrated then and now, turning it into a life-giving celebration of the life-giving sacrifice that he was about to make. And after he'd finished all of his teachings, his final teachings to his disciples, and in his prayer in the upper room of a Jewish home in Jerusalem, probably Mark's home, he left with 11 of his disciples to walk about a mile to the northeast across the Kidron Valley to the slopes of the Mount of Olives. It's still there. He went there to one of his favorite spots, an olive grove known as the Garden of Gethsemane. He went there to be alone and pray while his disciples were nearby. Judas, the disciple who would betray him, had left earlier that evening to rendezvous with a group of soldiers and others to lead them to Jesus so they could arrest him. When Judas and the soldiers arrived, Jesus went out to meet them, and he asked them who they wanted, and they answered, Jesus of Nazareth, and he simply replied, I am he. But his presence 
scared the men so much that they retreated and fell to the ground. And again, he asked him what they wanted and who they wanted. And they said they wanted him. And he asked them to let his disciples go. But Peter impetuously drew a sword and struck one of them, cutting off a man's right ear. Jesus healed the man's ear. Then he told Peter to put up his sword. He told him that he intended to drink the cup of wrath, as Jesus referred to it, and shame that the father had asked him to drink. In his humanity, he didn't want to drink it, but he went through with it. The disciples fled and Jesus was taken into custody. Jesus had come to earth from heaven to redeem again or buy back the fallen race of Adam from the evil one, Satan. And speaking metaphorically as the Bible speaks, to buy for himself a bride, a people that would love him. And now the hour had come that according to rules that he and his father had written before the dawn of time to pay for his bride with his own life. The soldiers took Jesus first to the home of Annas where he was interrogated and beaten. Annas had been the high priest, but the Romans had deposed him and appointed Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the high priest. So there were really two high priests. Next, Jesus was taken to the home of the acting high priest, Caiaphas, where again he was interrogated and beaten. While Jesus was being interrogated at these two high priest's homes, Peter, one of his disciples, and one of his closest friends was just outside the door. Three times some of the high priest's servants asked Peter, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? They thought they recognized him. Each time, Peter denied it emphatically, even cursing the last time. Jesus had prophesied earlier that day that this would happen. The third time, a rooster crowed, as Jesus said, would happen, and Peter ran away crying. Because the Jews were living in an occupied country and subject to Roman law, the Jewish leaders took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem. Pilate questioned Jesus and learned that he was a native of Galilee, an area outside of Pilate's jurisdiction. That area was governed by Herod Antipas, a half-Jew, who earlier, if you'll recall, had executed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, in a drunken party one night. Now, Herod was visiting Jerusalem at the time, at the time of the Passover, so he was in town. So, Pilate just sent Jesus across town to Herod, hoping to get out of what he knew was going to be a mess. Jesus made an effort to answer the questions earlier that evening of Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate. He even had an incredible discussion with Pilate. But apparently, Jesus had absolutely no respect for Herod whatsoever because he wouldn't speak to him. Herod and his guards mocked and ridiculed Jesus, but they had enough sense to send him back to Pilate. Pilate questioned Jesus further, and he argued with the Jewish leaders, trying to prevent Jesus from being crucified. He found no reason to execute Jesus, but the Jewish leaders demanded that he have Jesus crucified. Then Pilate had Jesus beaten nearly to death with a whip to try to appease the Jewish leaders. But they demanded that Pilate kill Jesus, arguing that Jesus claimed to be a king and <laughs> saying they had no king but Caesar. Finally, Pilate turned Jesus over to Roman soldiers to be crucified. They made a crown of thorns, pushed it into his head, 
They forced him to carry his own cross, but he was too weak to carry it all the way to his place of execution. So the soldiers forced an African man named Simon to carry it the rest of the way. His place of execution was a hill outside of town called Golgotha. They stripped Jesus naked, and they nailed and tied him to a cross. Then they placed a sign over the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The Jewish leaders protested the sign, but Pilate, out of spite, wouldn't take it down. The soldiers gambled for his clothing as had been prophesied centuries before would happen. Jesus was crucified between two criminals. One of them mocked Jesus. The other asked Jesus to remember him after his death. Jesus was promised that thief that before the day ended, the two of them would be together in paradise. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, he saw his disciple John, one of his close friends standing by his mother and his aunt and some other women, and Jesus asked John to take care of his mother after he was gone. Crucifixion was a slow and agonizing death that sometimes took up to two days. Jesus was put on the cross about 9 a.m. and died about 3 p.m. Speaking in human terms, he may have died quicker because he was beaten so badly before he was crucified, but he decided when it was time to die. The gospel writers indicate that Jesus spoke very little while he was dying. He asked his father to forgive his tormentors. That's the first thing he said from the cross, Father, forgive. He said he was thirsty in his humanity, and he cried out to God a question that many of you have cried out at times, and I've cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he was dying, he said, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. And while Jesus was on the cross, the sky became dark as night. There was an earthquake, and the curtain that separated the innermost part of the Jewish temple was torn in two. About three in the afternoon, the Jewish leaders asked the Roman soldiers to break the legs of the three men being crucified to allow them to suffocate and die quickly so that we wouldn't be hanging there during the Jewish Sabbath, which began at sundown on Friday. The soldiers got to Jesus. He was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Instead, the soldiers thrust a spear into him under his ribs to be sure he was dead, and blood and bodily fluid poured out. Later, Jesus' body was given to a wealthy Pharisee by the name of Joseph, who was a secret follower of Jesus. And Joseph and Nicodemus, another Jewish leader, who was also a follower of Jesus, if you remember, he had come to Jesus earlier in Jesus' ministry at night. They wrapped Jesus' body for burial and carried the body to a tomb owned by Joseph that was nearby. A large rock was put over the entryway. Soldiers were sent to guard the tomb. And everybody, even his disciples, thought it was over. It was an awful and a scandalous thing that humanity did that day on the hillside outside of Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. What a strange way, what a strange way for the creator to rescue his prized creation, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. If you are here this morning, and you claim to be a follower of this Jesus of Nazareth, and you're trusting in his sacrificial death to give you eternal life, then I'm going to invite you in just a minute to do what Christians have done for centuries, take communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, to remember the sacrifice Jesus made of himself 
to redeem us from bondage to sin, death, and the devil. We're going to sing one more song, then I'm going to pop back up, and we'll take the elements of communion together. If you have, if you got the elements when you came in, and you can navigate these wonderful COVID communion cups, then I invite you to do that right now to get ready. Sometimes they don't operate very well, as many of you know. So there are elements on the tables to the side. So during this song, if you would like to get those, feel free to go get them and bring them back to your seat with you. We're going to sing a song, and then I'm going to pop back up. We're not going to take communion in groups like we do normally at New Heights. I'm going to pop back up, and we're going to take the elements together. But right now, let's worship together just for one song, then communion. You want to sing that, don't you? Forever and ever. That's all I got. That's the best right there. That sounded amazing. One, one little problem. Late on that Friday afternoon when Jesus hung on the cross, no one was thinking anything like that. No one was calling him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No one was saying, you reign. Your reign will go on forever and ever, and it'll never end. Here's what they were doing. They were mocking him. Those who had followed him so passionately now hid in despair. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the King of Israel. But now, as Jim just pointed out, he hung on a Roman cross, tortured, humiliated, dead, and to all appearances defeated. How, how could this have happened? Didn't we see this guy heal the sick? Cast out demons? Raise the dead? How is it that the one who just a few days before was hailed with loud hosannas as he rode into Jerusalem like a king is now on display before our eyes, killed like so many common, petty, revolutionaries and criminals before him? How could this happen? What went wrong? Everything that came before, all the miracles, the teaching, the triumphal entry, it all must have seemed like an, an idle tale, an idealistic dream. And now the, the cold winter of reality had set in, or, or at least they thought so. Let me just pause for a moment and say this. You and I did not see Christ die on the cross. But you and I have all experienced and will experience despair. We've all had times in our lives when it feels like they're just falling apart, when the world seemed to be darkness, when it seemed like we had no hope. I'll bet you've been there, and if you haven't, you haven't lived long enough. It's that feeling of being overwhelmed when the weight of the world is so heavy that you're like, I don't want to get up. I've been there. 
We may not like it, but emotions like that, they are a, a part of our existence. And the Bible describes this kind of sadness in what most theologians call the saddest psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 88. Here are just a few verses from that. I'm overwhelmed with troubles. And my, my life draw, draws near to death. And I'm, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like those without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Oh, man. That emotion, the one the psalmist describes, is despair. And there's plenty to go around today. Our world, if you haven't noticed, it's a little shaky right now. It's a little shaky. I, I drive all around Fayetteville, like most of you who live here. And uh, I've been driving around East Fayetteville lately because my gym's over on that side. And uh, uh, on the way there, I see these really nice houses. And all strewn about these different houses are signs. And they're not necessarily Christian signs. They're I'm very afraid signs. Signs like, hang in there. Life is tough. It's going to be okay. There's a general groaning right now. Can, can you feel the groaning right now? Not only that, a little over three years ago, um, we never heard of a coronavirus. We certainly never heard of COVID-19. Ruth and I were laughing yesterday. Uh, the second it came out that weekend, we went and saw a movie. They're like, hide in your house. We're all going to die. I'm like, we better see one more movie before we die. Seriously. She's like, should we get popcorn? I'm like, yeah, we should. Might be the last bucket we ever eat. Milk duds and a Diet Coke. You know how that goes. Good grief. Every time I do that, the person's like, really? B popcorn, extra butter, milk duds, and a Diet Coke. Hmm. We never heard of COVID-19, but now we have. We're all experts, right? Raise your hand if you're an expert on COVID-19. No, just kidding. You don't have to do that. But you think you are. The last three years have been a gauntlet. COVID-19 has been <clears throat> an especially cruel disease, not just because of the physical illness it causes, but because it's kept us apart. We are made for community, not isolation. We desperately need each other. Countless people not only died, but they died alone, and their loved ones were left both feeling helpless and guilty. And so along with the pandemic of illness has come a pandemic of loneliness and depression and isolation. Jesus knows that feeling. Father, I need you right now. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? You see, he doesn't get me. Jesus doesn't understand. Oh, he understands. He understands. Jesus' first followers were surely overcome with this despair as well when their beloved rabbi and Lord, the one for whom they had given up everything, was taken from, taken from them, tortured and killed. But 
Thanks be to God, the story doesn't end there. Let's read the rest of the story together. Please open your Bibles to the New Testament book of the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 24 and verse, verse 1. Your Bibles and Bible apps. Don't trust me. Look at the word. Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. So Jim left us with Jesus in a tomb. Christianity wasn't even called that then. Defeated. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Big, large, heavy stone. What the? But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning <coughs> stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember, he, he told you about this, right? And while he was still with you, he said, I'm, I'm going to rise. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Ah. Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene. Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, <clears throat> wondering to himself what had happened. Did you notice who wasn't excited? The eleven. the guys who should know better, the apostles, the disciples. Did they jump up and begin celebrating? Did they all run out to find the, the risen Christ? No, no, they didn't believe. They went from feast to famine, right? They thought it was an idle tale, and, and we shouldn't judge them too, too harshly. Please hear this. Sometimes we are wounded so badly or we have become so used to disappointment that we can't believe good news when we hear it. Maybe we're afraid to believe it. Maybe we don't want to be let down again. Maybe we've just become so cynical that, to, that we expect nothing other than one disappointment after another. Our minds can become conditioned to negative thoughts. And so the disciples didn't, didn't believe them. The death of Jesus has, has just been too much for them, and it's crushed them. And this story about the empty tomb, well, it just seemed to them to be an idle tale. And let's be honest. It's easier that way. It's safer that way. It's easy and safe to believe that Jesus is still in the tomb. It's easier to be a cynic. It's easier to be a pessimist because if we keep our expectations low enough, then we won't get hurt again. And when everyone around you is a pessimist, an optimist seems like what? An idiot. You know, that happy guy, right? Happy guy, happy girl. You look at him, you're like, like a puppy dog. 
You're going to grow up and get hit by a car. I promise you. That's what happens in life. Life is going gonna, is gonna to come sneak up on you and punch you in the face and, oh, there goes glass half full girl. Huh. But <clears throat> there was one among them who believed. Peter. Rash, impetuous Peter. He believed enough to go see for himself. Maybe he remembered Jesus' words that on the third day he would rise. Maybe he thought that this is no idle tale at all. And so he ran to the tomb and he bent down and he looked inside. And as he looked inside, he saw Jesus' grave closed, but he didn't see Jesus. Why look for the living among the dead? He is risen. He's alive. Years ago, I spoke to a man. Thank you, James. I spoke to a man who, who came not to this church, but a church I was at a pastor before, a pastor at before. Um, I spoke to a man who came to church because his wife wanted him to come. He wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he wanted to honor his wife. Very noble. Really nice guy. One Sunday, I had spoken about, about the resurrection, and afterwards, he came up to me, and, and he said this. He said, Lee, um, is anything really different after the resurrection? In other words... You Christians claim that this is the most important thing that's ever happened, but what's changed? Lee, I, I look around, I see pain. People are still killing, lying, and stealing. There's war, there's strife, there's, there's hunger. What, what's changed? If Jesus was raised from the dead, what difference has it really made? Fair question. I don't remember exactly how I responded to him, but unfortunately, I think I was um, too cliche. I was too Pollyanna, and I was too defensive. If I could have a redo, this is what I would say to him today, and I want you to see this. Yes, the world is still broken. But the Bible never says that with the resurrection of Jesus, God made everything right. That's coming, but not yet. That's coming, but not yet. But while God has not solved every problem or wiped away every tear from our eyes, his work through the resurrection is nonetheless wondrous and wonderful and ongoing. If you didn't know, and again, I want you to see this behind me. If you didn't know, this is really important. Crucifixion was a punishment that was supposed to destroy movements. When there was a political uprising or a slave rebellion, the crosses would go up and the criminals would go um, up on them. And the reason it was always so public is that it was meant to make an example out of the person who was punished. That's why there is an inscription over Jesus' head. Do you remember what it says? What does it say? King of the Jews. Oh, there's another movement. Demolished. Oh, he's the king? How's he doing? Looks pretty beat up. Losing a lot of blood. How's your king doing? Oh, movement stopped. 
The Romans wanted everyone to know that Jesus was being killed for claiming he was a king. Crucifixion worked. Time and time again, the Romans crushed the movements and opposed them through the terror of the cross. The cross worked. I mean, it really worked, except for this one time when a crucified man got up. I mean, he just got up. This time, the movement that the Romans tried to conquer went on to conquer Rome with the love of Jesus. And eventually, it would spread to the ends of the earth. This time, the cross would become a symbol not of the power of Rome, but of the power of God. This time, death would not prevail, but through his death, Christ would conquer death. And this small, frightened group of Jesus' followers hiding away because their Lord had been killed would give rise to what would become the most powerful spiritual movement the world has ever known. Nathan alluded to it. No one dies for a lie. But when they saw the risen Savior, they went, oh my this changes everything. This, time's, this time things would be different because in every other case, the crucified person stayed dead. But in Jesus' case, he just got up. He is risen and he would show his followers that nothing, not even the might of the Roman Empire, not even the tyranny of the cross would stop what God was doing. You see, God conquered death through Christ. And now for every follower of Jesus, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. God has conquered death in us personally. And now the timeline, our timeline, is eternity. This is really important. I want you to see this as well. The resurrection of Christ wasn't a one-time event. It was just a first-time event. Let me say it again. The resurrection of Christ wasn't just a one-time event. It was a first-time event. Paul talks about Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection, but what does that mean? You see, Jesus lived in a farming culture, and when it was harvest time, on the first day, they would gather just a small bit of the harvest, the first fruits. And you know what they'd do? They'd have a celebration. Just a little bit. Hey, bring the tomatoes, the eggplant, the zucchini, the cucumber, whatever else they had. I don't know, but you know, they brought it in. Like, this is amazing. Why would they celebrate? Because it was a taste of what was yet to come. Then the next day, the, the general harvest would begin. You, you see, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And we will be like the general harvest. And someday, we who have been made like him will rise like him. The resurrection isn't just something that gets us excited on a Sunday usually in, in, in March or April. The resurrection is a taste of our future resurrection. It's a sneak preview to what you and I will experience one day if we know and love and follow Jesus when we die and, and we will die. The women who went to the tomb bore witness to something that would change not just the world but eternity. But on a much more personal level, they bore witness to an act that God would change my life and yours. You see, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you, and he lives in me. And through that spirit, God has taken people like you and me who are dead in our sins and given, has given us new lives. 
We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from death. And the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is no idle tale. He is alive. And that is the basis of our hope. And now, if you remember the words, let's sing it together. You ready? Yeah, it's hard to sing that. I am sorry about that. (laughs) That's a little intimidating, right? (laughs) Hallelujah, though. Um, We worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will reign forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let me me finish this morning with one question. And I'm, I'm done. One question. Have you ever personally received Jesus into your life as Savior and Lord? Not what I go to church. I'm faithful online. Not well, you know, my granddad, he was a Baptist preacher. And have you ever personally received into your life Jesus as Savior and Lord? I know some of you are thinking, you say, well, Lee, I can't. Um, because um, Christians are hypocrites. Yeah, there are some Christians who are hypocrites, and I'm angry at them, and sometimes I'm a hypocrite, and I get angry at my, myself. But Jesus didn't say, follow my people. What did he say? Follow me. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I can't because Christians are weird. Right? Newsflash, those people were weird before they became Christians. Remember that. <laughs> Now they're just saved weird people. And that's good news for all of you weird people. Jesus saves weird people. And I can say that because everyone thinks I'm not weird, but some of you are weird. You're just, you're, you're weird. You are. Weirdness is not because of their Christianity. The weirdness is just them. Please hear this. The offer of salvation is between you and the father who created you. When you die, and one day you will, you will not stand before hypocritical Christians and weird Christians and give an account of your life, but you will stand before the person we just sang about or listened to, King Jesus. You'll stand before King Jesus. The Bible tells us that the first time, and Jim laid this out beautifully and passionately, And somberly, he came as a a suffering savior, a lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. We're like, yes, right now is that time. This is the time of the suffering savior where you go, oh, wow, thank you for the sacrifice. Oh, we celebrated that in communion. But the Bible says the next time he comes, he'll come as king or judge. And for those who know and love him, oh, oh, what a day. For those who don't, it will be terrible. So this morning, 
I want you to have the chance to receive Jesus Christ if you never have. And I'm going to extend that to you. And I also want to give you a chance to be baptized as a show of your faith in, in Christ if you have, if you've never, if you've never done that. That's our, our baptismal right over there. So do me a favor. If you don't mind, just bow your heads. At New Heights, we, we try not to ever do anything to embarrass people or scare you or make you uptight. That's not our goal. Please hear this. You need to know this. The God of the universe loves you so much. He loves you more than you will ever know. And even before you even thought about him, he's been thinking constantly about you. Jesus Christ is alive today because he is God. And he has also defeated death. And he wants you to defeat death as well as experience life to the fullest the way you were meant to live. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Not just eternal life, but abundant life. So just talk to him right, right now in your heart. You don't have to say anything out, out loud. God, God knows your heart. He knows the very thoughts just going across your mind right now because he, he made you. You might be thinking, well, well what, Lee, what do, I, what do I say? Well, you might want to say something like this. And I'll, 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 I'll say a prayer. I'll say it really slow. If you feel that God is prompting you to respond, just repeat it after me. God, I realize that I've made a lot of mistakes. I've done things wrong, and I'm sure I've done things that displeased you. I have sinned. So I, I ask you to forgive me. I want to turn from my sins and turn to you for forgiveness of those sins. Jesus Christ, I believe you are alive today. I don't understand it all, but as much as I know as much as I know how, I ask you to come into my life and to be the Lord of it. Jesus Christ, come in. I want to believe in you. I want you to be number one in my life. I need your power. I need your promises. And I need your purpose for my life. Amen. You can look up. In the book of Acts, the new and improved Peter, who had experienced the risen Jesus, and not only that, had experienced the Holy Spirit, who had given him power, preached a message about the risen Jesus. And at the end of his message, he says this, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. You'll, you'll notice they began their commitment with immediate obedience to what Jesus said. Notice what they didn't say. Whoa, that's embarrassing. Oh, don't I have to take a class? Got to take a baptismal class. They didn't say that. Oh, I'll put it off for another time. The Holy Spirit, using Peter, had so convicted and encouraged their new sanctified hearts, their new Jesus hearts, that they went, whatever you say, Jesus, I'll do. 
Whatever you ask, I'll be a part of. You want me to get baptized to, to tell people I'm a follower of you? Let's go. So, if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I can't wait. I, I need to get baptized. You can do it when I'm finished teaching. I'll be standing down here, but you don't need me, but I'll be down here. If you want to come talk to me or someone else on staff or a friend who brought you, um, and you say, I want to be baptized, let's do it. We even have a, a towel for you, but you're like, man, I've got my, my best Easter clothes on. I don't want to ruin them. Um, first service, here's what you can do. You can go home, get your clothes changed, and come on back for second service, at the end of second service, and we'll get baptized. Some of you are like, these old things, who cares? I'm going to take all the electronics off and jump in. Praise God. Praise God. So we let's make today the day. Let me pray. Father, Thank you that um, you have experienced all that we experience and more. Thank you, Jesus, that you are not only resurrected, Jesus, but you're a man of sorrows. Because sometimes we're sorrowful. Thank you for sitting in our sorrow with us. When all seems lost, when we're in despair, you've not left us, you've not forsaken us. But we do thank you that you have, you have resurrected, that you've conquered death, and one day we'll conquer death. Father, I pray this morning for anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day of freedom. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, um, we're really excited. Uh, we have our first baptism this morning, um, and maybe our last, but it's, it's, we're excited about it.